Um, today, today, if you want to turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. In Australia, we have become a very multicultural society. We've had a bunch of different cultures that have come into this land, including myself. I'm an, I'm an immigrant here, and, 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 and you have all these cultures. And with this multiple cultures come in, also come multiple belief systems. And in those multiple belief systems, it's a very, it's a very sort of cherry-picking mentality in life today where people will, will pick and choose what they like from various mindsets and from various belief systems and accommodate what they live or what they choose to believe. This then makes it difficult for us as Christians to live in what I'd like to call a pagan society a pagan society, and that's not necessarily an easy thing to do. Now, I need to explain something. The word pagan, according to the dictionary, is not a word that's commonly used today in its original context. What it meant in the traditional definition, it looked at uh, multi-theistic gods, a culture that served many gods, which is the, like the Romans and the Greeks of that time. During, as time sort of moved on, the, the definition of pagan sort of spread to a person in its historical context as one who is not a Muslim, Christian, or Jew. So basically it was anybody that, didn't, that was, was outside of a monotheistic belief system. It has now even extended to the modern day to actually include those who are irreligious, so we've got nothing to do with religion, or someone that is involved with hedonism. And do you know what hedonism is? It's basically the idea of, of, of pleasure. You, you're, you're seeking pleasure. You're hedonistic. You're looking for personal pleasure as the ultimate goal. So my aim when I use this word pagan and living godly in a pagan world isn't to create a tension between like us and them or that I'm any better than anybody else. I'm not looking to sound arrogant or, or, or judgmental by labeling them with such a title. But we live in a time today when I think about a pagan society where pleasure is the priority. We live in a society where people can be whatever they want to be, even if they just feel like it, no matter what the cost. It is a pagan society today. We, we, we're, we're, discrimination is deemed acceptable provided you align yourself with a specific narrative and anyone that disagrees with such a narrative are deemed as bigoted and narrow-minded. Now, the reason why I start with that is because Peter is writing to a society that was definitely pagan. Well, no, not a society. He was writing to a church in a society that was definitely pagan. These Christians were scattered all over the place and being hunted and persecuted for merely representing and being a believer in the person of Jesus Christ. 
they had their lives taken. They were beaten. They were harmed. They were excommunicated from communities. They had property taken from them, positions that were lost, and they were condoned with those things or for that treatment by the ruling class of the day. They were harassed for the simple reason of following Jesus. So as Peter looks to encourage them with the privilege of being able to call on a father, which we looked at several weeks ago, when we looked at how Peter, when Peter writes to remind them of tasting of the Lord's goodness in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 3, and of being transformed, as we looked at last week, generationally, vocationally, nationally, and personally by the precious person of Christ in verses 4 to 10 of chapter 2, Peter lays out some really practical instructions about how we are to live in a society such as this. How we are to live with our hearts and our lives aligned with the heart and purpose of God in the midst of a society that does not want anything to do with him. And so I want to, I'm going to read the passage, which is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 21. We're not going to look at the whole thing because we're going to concentrate on one verse today. So starting from verse 11, read with me in your Bibles, and then I'll open in prayer. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves to the Lord's, for the Lord's sake to every authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to command those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. If I skipped on, sorry, okay. But how is it to your credits if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called. So read that again. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross. 
We thank you for the nail-pierced hands of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that in him we have life and we have security. I pray now as we look at your word and we're challenged about living in the world that we are now, being in the world but not of the world, you might challenge our hearts and draw us closer to yourself. Please teach us now, in Jesus' name, amen. There is some amazing practical instruction in this passage of Scripture. And while I don't like, I mean, I say it a number of times, I'm not trying to prescribe to you the solutions for every problem in life. I'm not trying to sit there and say, if you do this, this, and this, then this, this, and this will result. I'm not trying to do that, but I am going to tell you this. This is the Word of God prescribing to you and me what our conduct is supposed to be. That being in the world and not of the world, this is how we then should live. Not by our own strength and for our own purposes, but by the very Spirit of God. And the thing about this practical instruction laid out for us, I like, I like what I like to call the specificity, it's a cool word, the specificity of our instruction of living godly in this in, in this pagan society only has any real weight to it if you understand verse 11. And that's the verse I want us to look at today. I don't know what happened now. There we go. This is the verse that deals with the inward motivation, the changing of the inner man, the challenge and the choice that we choose to make, not out of an outward obligation, but out of an inward desire. And I'll explain that now. He says, firstly, dear friends. I'm not going to look at that. That's self-explanatory as he's writing to these believers again, scattered throughout the area, through all of uh, Asia Minor, suffering persecution, things are grim. He says, dear friends, and then he goes, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. As I said, the passage begins by addressing who you are rather than jumping into what you're supposed to do. Make sense? Why? Because if there is a clear understanding of who we are, if there is a grasping of the role that we have, then the clarity of what we're supposed to do ultimately results. And actually, you've heard me say this before. When you understand the why, the what isn't a big deal. Well, it is. But if you understand the why, then you have no issues performing the what. Classic example was yesterday. The understanding of the why was Simon and Vivian expressing their love to one another with a covenant of marriage. They understood the why, so the what was them having this lovely day with a beautiful ceremony with all of its hiccups and with all of its joys, with all of the lateness that took place. People were there to partake of. They knew why they were there, to partake of their love and of their joy. So we didn't mind the what when we had to wait. We didn't mind the what 
when the rings were dropped. We didn't mind the what when songs were forgotten. We didn't mind the what. Why? Because we knew why we were there. Last week, I touched on the, the chosen generation, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, being his own special people. For what purpose? For what purpose? To show forth the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That was the blessing of that. We, none, we understand the why, so we have no problem with the what. Thus, added to this generational, this vocational, this national and this personal dimension to our existence in Christ, he says this. He says, I urge you, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. In the King James Bible, this word urge is translated as beseech. It is the same word used in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body as a living sacrifice. It's the same word. It is a pleading. It is a beckoning. It is saying, I want you to pay attention. Get a grasp of this. It's important what I've got to explain to you. And he says, all right. Pay attention to this. He says, pay attention. One, foreigners. Foreigners. This word can be used with very negative connotations, especially today. And I have heard it many a time, many a time. I remember one time in Barrel sitting outside of the Woolworths talking to a lovely older gentleman, just having a chat. He was waiting for his wife I was waiting for my wife, and this lovely little old lady sat down, and she says this, there's too many of you Kiwis over here. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, hello. And she goes, I, like, I pay my taxes, and you guys come over here going on support and taking our jobs. And, and I was like, well, thank you very much for your taxes. I, I really appreciate that. And she, she was in a huff, and, and she walked off. I, I, was, I was a lot less gracious back then. But the, uh, the gentleman boss, I guess, don't worry, the old biddy, mate, don't worry. I said, that's, that's okay, bro, that's fine. So I've been called, you know, sort of like the, the go home, you know, and, and all that, go back to where you came from. It carries with it this idea of not belonging, of being different, of being an intruder. Now, some of you may have felt this way in your experiences if you've moved in other countries and you feel like you're always on the outer always feeling awkward, always looking strange. Actually, um, that word foreigners in the King James is translated as strangers. I'm not saying you are strange, but you're, but you're strangers. You're, you're somebody that is foreign to an environment that you don't belong to. Do you get where I'm going with this? You see, being a foreigner, when you are in Christ, is not a bad thing. It is not a bad thing. It's a good thing because it is who we are in Christ. It is a good thing to be a stranger in this world, to be in the world and not of it. It is a good thing that we are deemed as foreigners by this world and they look at us as strange. 
It is a good thing that the biblical values that we hold to label us as intruders. It is a good thing that following and loving Jesus would identify us as being awkward around sinfulness, as being awkward around diminished moral values. And you know why it's a good thing? It's a good thing because we are no longer of this world. That's why. If you are uncomfortable in this world, you're supposed to be because you don't belong to this world. We're supposed to be desiring something more, something better, something that God has prepared for us. That's why it's a good thing. We are citizens of heaven. That's where we belong. Ephesians 2.19. We are, we are children of the most high God, according to John chapter 1, verse 12. We are made his children. We are part of his family, not of this world system. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 1.13. Not only are we sealed by the Holy Spirit, but His Spirit indwells us. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. So we should feel uncomfortable. We're supposed to feel uncomfortable. You've got to ask yourself, if you're not, why? Why? That's the whole point of this. That's why we are caught. So of course, being foreigners, living, having to live in a foreign land, Peter would appeal to that aspect to people who were being killed for their faith. People who are having stuff taken from them. People that have been harassed for following Jesus. He's saying to them, you're a foreigner. It's only temporary. It's okay because this is not your home. That's what he's trying to get across to them. That's why he calls them foreigners. It's as the writer of Hebrews puts it when he talks about the heroes of faith in Hebrews eleven sixteen 16, that we are longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called our God, for he has prepared a city for us. Where are you looking? Where is your hope? Where are you investing? That's what makes it so important that we identify as being foreigners in this world. Not only foreigners, but next he says, two, you are exiles. Exiles. This gives the idea of a transitory state. That you're, that you're moving, a temporary displacement. We are temporarily displaced at the moment on this earth. Temporarily displaced, destined to be in the presence of our God. And in that temporary displacement, in that transitory state, we have this hope and longing to return to what our home is. That desire to be back from which we came. When someone says to me, go back to where you came from, I would love to. I would love to. I'm not talking about New Zealand. I'm not talking about Samoa. I'm talking about heaven. I'm talking about being with my Jesus. That's what I want to be longing for. That's what we're supposed to be longing for. That's why Peter calls them foreigners and exiles. 
in the King James, strangers and pilgrims. It's like having this attitude that the exiles had in Babylon. Psalm 137, verses 1 to 4, says this. I just skipped it, but I'll read the whole lot to you. And it's from the 70s. There's this group called Boney M, and they sing this song from the King James, by the rivers of Babylon, where we sat, there we sat down. Yeah, we wept when we remembered Zion. That's one of the, that's the chorus. It's a beautiful song. We, we hanged our harps upon the willows, this is verse two, in the midst thereof. For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song, and they that wasted us required, wasted, required of us mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. So their captives are saying, sing, sing of your God, sing of your city, rejoice, tell us about it. Verse four, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Why on earth would I do that? I can't sing of that, why? Because I am not there I'm not in Zion. I'm not experiencing the fullness of what I had. I can't rejoice over that. That's what he's trying to get across. And that's why when you look at this idea of pilgrim, it means those that are on a journey. Not only on a journey, but moving united with a specific purpose on that journey. Thus, the beauty of these titles we hold point to a specific fact that many of us as Christians have failed to live out. Maybe the church has lost its impact. Maybe the church has lost its power. Maybe the church has lost its zeal and its enthusiasm. Even its love for Jesus is because we have made ourselves at home in Babylon. We have been comfortable singing the Lord's song in a strange land. Maybe because we now have lost sight of our eternal destiny. A book written by Dave Hunt says, it's titled this, Whatever Happened to Heaven? Whatever Happened to Heaven? And the premise of the book is basically saying how we as the Christian church of the 20th century, because that's when the book was written, is focused mainly on living comfortably, fitting in well, and living out our purpose till we die. Whatever happened to heaven? Whatever happened to that zeal? Jesus said this, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven because our ultimate destination is an everlasting dwelling with God the Father through God the Son. What did Jesus say in John chapter 14? That he was coming back to get us, that in his Father's house are many rooms. And he says, if it wasn't so, I wouldn't have told you. And he says, look, I'm going to go there, but I'm going to come back, and I'm going to bring you back with me. That's, that's our hope. That's the challenge for us to be consumed and concerned with the better to come, not content with the meager servants we have here in the world today. You see, the truth of Psalm 137, in conjunction with the truths of 2 Corinthians 5, Verses 1 to 5, which talks about longing for what? That an eternal tabernacle, an everlasting tabernacle that will break off this mortal coil, this mortal tent, and put on an everlasting tent. And I used the illustration, I shared this, I used the illustration for my dad when he went to glory, that he shed this mortal tent because he was going to his eternal one. 
And that when we go camping, we look forward to going home. As much fun as we like to have at camp, it's always nice to get home. But see, that's the desire. You combine that attitude of not being content in the place where you are in Psalm 137, coupled with the desire of look at what I'm going to. This is what I want. This is what I want to experience in Jesus Christ and have a desire for the things to come. That's what we're supposed to be aiming for, to help me live as a stranger in a strange land, as a pilgrim traveling through, a foreigner getting ready to go home and an exile waiting their return. That's us. That's us. That's who we are. At least that's who we are supposed to be. Foreigners and exiles. And as a part of that, Peter continues. And he also states that one of the biggest hindrances to that mindset, to that desire, is also us. It's also us. The verse continues what? That we are to abstain from sinful desires which war against the soul, a war against your soul. That word abstain means to refrain from, to restrict, to hold back. It's a choice made by us, which is of note because it basically says this, you play your part. You play your part. You take responsibility. Repentance is a choice. Submission is a choice. Love is a choice. Forgiveness is a choice. Abstaining from sinful desires is a choice. But notice that he doesn't address the act of sinning. He doesn't, he doesn't address the act of sinning, rather the desire to sin. Why? Because I know my heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, according to Jeremiah 17, 9. I know that it's not what goes into me that defiles me, but what comes out that defiles me, because what comes out comes from the heart. So when we look at this whole idea of sinful desires, we automatically jump to like sexual sin. Uh, in the King James, sinful desires is translated as fleshly lusts. Abstain from fleshly lusts. And we look, okay, and we automatically think fleshly lust, oh, sexual immorality, but there's so much more than that. Uh, it, it, our fleshly lusts, our sinful desires, that could be demonstrated in the act of gluttony, of just, of just picking, our, picking out ourselves by eating or drinking to excess, especially when you don't need to. That's the, there's that manipulative spirit that we can sometimes exercise to get our own way under the guise of godliness. There's that heart of hypocrisy that holds others to a standard that I'm refusing to keep myself and so many more. There's the gossiping, there's the niggling, there's the self-righteousness, there's the unfair comparisons, there's the backstabbing, there's the sarcasm, there's the lack of love, the lack of acceptance, the lack of understanding. Basically, anything that focuses on self at the expense of others. However, something makes me feel regardless of how it makes you feel. That's what a fleshly desire, a fleshly lust is. That's what a sinful desire is, how it makes me feel at the expense of somebody else, not for the glory of God, but for my own personal satisfaction. Okay, and, in, and, and why is that so to abstain from such things? Once again, abstaining means the choice not to gossip, the choice not to be a hypocrite, 
The choice not to forgive. The choice not to repent. And why is that such a big thing? Well, because it wars against your very soul. It fights against who you are. It's the antithesis of what you want to be and desire to be. The flesh, what the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And it appeals to our flesh. And I've shared this before. Tony Evans, one of B-Rad's favorite preachers, Tony Evans differentiates between the body, soul, and spirit. And he says how the body gives you an awareness of your environment. When it's cold, you, get, you shiver. When you're hot, you sweat. You know, it, it gives you an awareness of your environment. He says the spirit, that gives you an awareness of God. According to Ephesians chapter 2, our spirits are dead, and it has to be made alive by Jesus Christ. But that gives us our awareness of God. The body gives you an awareness of yourself. It's where your emotions are, your personality is, and, and all, all that sort of stuff, okay? Who you are as a person, that's, that's your soul. So Paul writes of this battle that wages even within himself. He talks about it in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, how we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against about powers and principalities and authorities and, and the rulers of darkness. He talks about all that in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. He, he goes, wow, this is what we wrestle against. I'm battling with this that I cannot see, but I know is real. How is that dealt with? God in his grace provides the armor of God and deliverance in Christ. You, you see that in, in, in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 to 18. Then Paul writes of his inward struggle, and he writes about how in his very soul, in Romans 7, 14 to 24, he writes about the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. And he talks about this back and forth and back and forth inwardly. And it's continually going on. And he asks, who will deliver me from this? And then in, in Romans 7, 25 and 26, we find that deliverance in Christ. So this battle is real. This, this battle is genuine. And that as a foreigner and as an exile, as a stranger and a pilgrim, we are to move through this life understanding that on this journey, we make choices to abstain against those things that we war against. That we not only choose to abstain, but we choose to understand that this life is a transitory life. That we have to have eyes set on eternity, not on the here and now. Heaven and earth will pass away. We know this. But he who does the will of God abides forever. And even though while the battle is always there, walking in obedience and submission, walking in independence and reliance on his spirit, walking and choosing to walk according to the specific instruction, then we see God do amazing things. As, as it's not seen as a chore or an obligation to be met, but more a blessing and an opportunity to glorify God. What I mean by that is this. Look at the list of stuff from verse 12 down to verse 21. We have things like this. In verse 12, 
because we're living as strangers and pilgrims, because we're living in dependence upon Him, because we understand that this life is only a temporary life, then we see these things around us as opportunities to serve and to minister and to glorify God. Such as this in verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Look at what happens as you walk as a stranger, as a pilgrim, and, and abstaining from such things. You end up living this life that glorifies God, especially in the lives in the eyes of other people. What happens? We are told to submit ourselves, notice this, for the Lord's sake to every human authority. The impact that you have in your submission to, the, to, to God has an impact in society, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will, get that, for it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Think about that. In your workplace, in your homes, in your communities, to think that by living a life that honors God, being one of integrity, being one of righteousness, and it doesn't matter if people speak ill against you, your life speaks for itself. I still remember Marion Arblaster sharing with me at the high school in the English department. She said to me, they don't like you, Joe, because of what you believe, all the English teachers. And then she said this, but they do respect you and what you do for the kids. And I thought, wow. So even though they don't like me, they tolerate me because of the impact that God is able to have through me in their lives. And so I silenced my opposers, not by sitting there and getting in their faces. Yeah, yeah, you want some? You want some? No. Why don't I get in their faces? But by living a life that honored God. And even though they still didn't like it, they accepted it and they respected it. All glory to God. Because I know what I'm like. I like verse 16. What else do we do as we abstain from fleshly lust at war against the soul? What happens? We live as free people. Do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. I love that in verse 16. Oh, not changed it. Sorry. Live as God's slaves. We are told in verse 17, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Love the family of believers. You know what I find crazy? That that has to be an instruction. But it's there. And, and, and the, oh, honestly, honestly, I have just been embraced and all my time here, being embraced by the love of GCC and by the love of the saints. I have never, I have never felt unwelcome here. Never. The joy of knowing such love and of being loved by you warms my heart, comforts my spirit. I know that's the love of God in each of you. And this is something that we get to do for each other. And look at that. And in that, it's a great testimony of that love. And look, honor the emperor. I've always been amazed that this emperor was the one that was persecuting them. 
This emperor was the one that was hunting them down. This, this emperor was the one that was legalizing all of the bad treatment. And he says, you honor the emperor. I, I posted on our, on our devotional wall the hiding place, the Corey Ten Boone um, testimony book. It, I, I encourage everybody to listen to it. I like it a few hours, I think about nine hours. But I encourage you to listen to it. And what's amazing in that story is her sister, Betsy, who didn't make it out of the concentration camp. But Betsy was talking about how, uh, she's talking about the needs and about the prayer for people and about the support that they need and how they're lost without the love of Jesus and they need to know the love of Jesus and it has to be through them. While she's dying, while she's getting weaker and weaker and while she's dying and Corey realizes she's not talking about the other prisoners, she's talking about the very people that were persecuting her, the Nazi officers that were cruel and would beat her. And she said, these people need Jesus, and they won't see it any other way except through me. And then when God called her home, the impact, the impact that, that she was able to have in, in God taking her was absolutely huge. So honor the emperor. Your slaves, which we use as employees in reverent fear, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those that are harsh. And then you carry on reading through all of that as well. I mean, but that's, that's what we get to do. I want you to think about this. It's what we get to do. We get to do this. We get to do this. God has given us the opportunity to serve in this manner. That in our short time here, we can have a huge impact for the kingdom of God. We get to do this. It's not that you have to. God's allowing you. He's inviting you. He's saying, be a part of what I'm doing. Come join me in the work. Come join me in reaching out to your workmates. Come join me in reaching out to your family. Come, reaching, come join me in reaching out to your friends. Show the love of you. You get to be a part of what I want to do in your friend's life. Come along with me and help me. That's what Jesus is saying to us. And that's the opportunity that we have. In verse 21, to this we are called because Christ suffered for us leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. If we can understand the greatness of who we are as foreigners and exiles, if we can grasp the beauty of verse 21, that we as foreigners and exiles have been called to this, if we can know this, if we can understand that why we're called to this is because Christ set the example for us in his suffering and that we are invited, like you want to know how to do something and you know this, I'm going to close with this. You know, you want to know how to do something, then you, you copy somebody else. You follow somebody else. You want to know how to play guitar. Then I've been following a guy on YouTube. I'm eventually going to be brave enough to try and play with, with Jono and, then we can, and so we can learn together but I'll be following him. Yeah, I, I, I want to learn, I, I want to learn how to, I don't know, play soccer or table tennis. Then I'd follow Tommy or Auntie Judy. Or she would teach me how to play badminton. Okay, I would follow other people, I would follow other people and how to do this. Look at the example Jesus has given us. He said, This is what I wanted to do, want you to do. I have set the example and I'm inviting you to follow it. And look, I want us to grasp this whole thing. He goes, I want you to follow it. We get to do that. He's letting us. He's allowing us. He's inviting us. Let's not turn away from it.
Let's start on that because we'll be the ones that will miss out. Okay? So I urge you, brothers and sisters, as foreigners and as exiles, as, as strangers and as pilgrims, abstain from sinful desires, from fleshly lusts that war against the soul. And let us instead take up our cross daily, deny ourselves, and follow him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the, the beauty of your word, the, the privilege of being a stranger and a pilgrim, the, the, the blessing, Lord, of, of just knowing the reality that you have called us to. I pray, Father, you will give us this understanding spirit, an understanding heart, the acceptance of what you're trying to do within each of our lives. And Father, I pray that you will awaken us, awaken our souls, awaken our minds, awaken our spirits to see our lives here as transitory, as temporary, as looking into the heavenly, of seeing beyond our situation and look and, and be excited and enthusiastic of what you have prepared for us in your son. Father, only you can bring about that change. Only you can make such a revelation. And I pray that we will respond to your spirit when he challenges us. Therefore, to us who are called because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example, I pray that we will follow as a church, as families, as individuals, your steps too. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.